Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for all the great things you've prepared for us in the future. We're so looking forward to the harvest, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we ask that you help us to understand today the ways of faith and what you expect us to walk in. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to call this The Science of Healing and Quantum Faith. This is number three. All right, we're going to talk about timelines, somewhat. Resurrection, somewhat. Okay. And uh, our thanks to Deb and, and her husband, Will Horton, who uh, majored in physics, who gave us some important information here. Um, Wikipedia defines quantum as, quote, in physics, a quantum, the plural is quanta, is the minimum amount of any physical entity or physical property involved in interaction. Hmm. The fundamental notion that a physical property can be quantized is uh, referred to as the hypothesis of quantization. This means that the magnitude of the physical property can take on only discrete values consisting of integer multiples of one quantum. For example, a photon is a single quantum of light of a specific frequency or of any other form of electromagnetic radiation. Similarly, the energy of an electron bound within an atom is quantized and can exist only in certain discrete values. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about it in a minute. But um, atoms and matter in general are stable because electrons can exist only at discrete energy levels within an atom. Quantization is one of the foundations of the much broader physics of quantum mechanics. Quantization of um, energy and its influence on how energy and matter interact, uh, which is quantum electrodynamics, is part of the fundamental framework for understanding and describing nature. Willard says that an element or particle of time is not yet defined in science. However, the Bible does define a particle of time. It is the twinkling of an eye. (laughs) 
in 1 Corinthians 15:51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We all shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some changing going on in, uh, in much closer to us than this change. But, and according to Strong's moment is from Atamos. Moment, the word moment. Uh, from one slash A, not, and 5114, tomateros, to cut. To cut the atom? Hmm. Properly not able to cut, divide, because too small, uh, is, is too small to be measured, like a split second. An instant, um, an indivisible moment of time, too short to measure, souter, okay? Too short to measure. So we're getting down to the quantum, right? And Deb said, if it's uh, indivisible, then that means it is in a wave form. Okay, Schrodinger's cat. You've heard about that, I'm sure. Um, the 10-27-23 Friday UBM live broadcast, uh, it was mentioned, as David started his explanation of what the factious Satanists had done to sacrifice Eve Brast and how she had been snatched out of her grave in the woods where they buried her by an angel over the UBM angels called uh, Baruch and how she had received another body, how some of the factious died yet came back only to die again and many other events that had occurred involving opposing timelines. I was beginning to freak out, <laughs> and I thought maybe David had been invaded by some New Age spirit and was going down the path of transmigration of the soul. But as he continued, I realized I was hearing Schrodinger's cat, as described by David. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Uh, Wikipedia says, In quantum mechanics, Schrodinger's cat is a thought experiment, sometimes described as a paradox of quantum superposition. Uh, in the thought experiment, a hypothetical cat may be considered simultaneously both alive and dead while it is unobserved in a closed box, as a result of its fate being linked to a random subatomic event that may or may not occur. That would probably be um, uh, somebody's faith on what that cat should be, right? Uh, this thought experiment was devised by physicist Erwin Schrodinger in 1935 in a discussion with Albert Einstein to uh, illustrate what Schrodinger saw as the problems of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. 
So I emailed David about the broadcast and my initial concern, along with a link to an article with the best uh, layman's explanation of the Schrodinger's cat paradox that I could find. But when David tried the link, it came up uh, 404, page not found. And after David replied to my email and I tried it again, that link came up 404, page not found for me also. Well, it was there for me that I I couldn't have uh, read the article and copied the link and sent it to David. <laughs> so then, suddenly, I realized that the Lord was actually verifying the premise of Schrodinger's cat, which is uh, that something can be there and not be there at the same time. And this is what quantum physics or quantum mechanics has proven. Why and how is that possible, she asks. Okay, so I'm going to give an answer here. Uh, When the Lord first spoke to me of two opposite timelines running parallel at the same time, I did not understand because I hadn't heard any of this. And as time went on, I understood that the good believer's timeline was actuated by our faith in believing we have received what we ask for. Something happens out there when we do that. (laughs) In fact, the whole creation is set up to answer us when we do that. Okay? And uh, the verse he emphasized to me a a lot was Mark 11, 23 and 24. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up, and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he saith cometh to pass, he shall have it. That's powerful. Some people ignore that, but it's to their own detriment. Okay? So, I say, speak to the mountains that hinder your path, and remove them like unbelief because it puts you in a completely different timeline. Therefore I say unto you, all things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that ye received them. That's what it is in the Greek and in the numerics. And you shall have them. Wow. Okay, you have to believe you've received whatever you pray for. We see that everything that you pray and ask for Believe you have received it by order of Jesus. And this is the believer's timeline. The other timeline is the unbeliever's timeline, which is under the curse. What quantum physics or mechanics has proven is that the whole creation is set up to answer our prayers of faith. Our experiences in this regard are parables that help us to realize the necessity to know what faith is and how to use it. Okay, back. The least technical scientific explanation I can give you of Schrodinger's cat paradox is that merely by the act of observing something, The observer does indeed affect what is being observed. People on the bad timeline have tried to contact me from the Middle East, and the Lord says, don't answer them. 
Don't set your eyes on what they say. They're looking for a way to live. And they want uh, your agreement. And I understand that now, but I didn't at first. So we see in our mind's eye what we want or need when we ask for it. We're seeing something. Our imagination brings up pictures. You know, when we want something or we need it, and we're looking at that picture and we're believing we've received that, right? You may possibly, she says, run across this in a science news or scientific American article where they discuss how those observing a complex experiment may inadvertently affect that experiment because they are looking for a specific outcome. That's what we do. That's how faith works. In some cases, uh, multiple observers may each obtain a different outcome because that was the outcome they desired to find. So multiple observers are able to cause multiple outcomes. What is seen or what is called reality actually does depend on the observer. In other words, the faith of the person to see the thing they have asked for. Uh, and that matches what Jesus said in Matthew 9 and 29. According to your faith, be it done unto you. Mm-hmm. So here are the pieces of Barry Rothman's artcode.com uh, write-up where the Bible describes altering timelines by reversing them. Okay, <clears throat> and this is the beginning of, of a copied Rothman section, okay? The 37th chapter of Ezekiel calls to mind what, we, what would be seen on a film if any army were suddenly killed, fell to the ground, and then started to rot and decompose. There's just one problem. Ezekiel 37 describes what would be seen if the film were run in reverse. That is, it seems to portray resurrection as a process akin to the reversal of time. But while Ezekiel is interpreted by some as a metaphor, 2 Kings 28-11 is a very different matter. The incident in question is as follows. 2 Kings 20 and 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do that thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees, or back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It's a light thing for the shadow to decline ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backwards ten degrees, which would be, of course, a reversal of time, right? Uh, and Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought back the shadow ten degrees backwards, which... Uh, by which it had gone down on the dial of Ahaz, the sundial, right? 
The story of how Isaiah, with God's help, reversed time, or the spin of the earth, is also found in Isaiah 38 and 8, which states, Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the, the dial, which is gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, to return ten degrees backwards. So the sun returned ten degrees by which degrees it was gone down. Uh, he continues the backward description mentioned earlier with respect to the film analogy can be seen in Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and the Lord carried me out in the spirit and set me down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of dry bones. And he caused me to pass by them around about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, You know. Uh, Ezekiel 37 and 4. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say unto them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and you will bring up flesh upon you, uh, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I... And as I prophesied, there was a noise and a commotion, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I beheld, and lo, there were sinews upon them, and uh, flesh came up, and skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy unto the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, uh, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, and they were a very great host. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit in you, and, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. Okay, uh, note here, Resurrection in Torah and Talmud. The picture that the Torah paints of resurrection is again one that resembles the reversal of time. In Deuteronomy 32 and 39, we read, See now that I am He, and no God is with me. I put to death, and I bring life. I wound, 
and I will heal, and there is no rescuer from my hand. The Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 91b, discusses this verse. It says, Our rabbis taught, I kill and I make alive. I might interpret, I kill one person and give life to another, as the world goes on. Therefore, the writ states, I wound and I heal. Just as the wounding and healing obviously referred to the same person, so putting to death and bringing to life refers to the same person. This refutes those who maintain that the resurrection is not intimated in the Torah. With respect to the arrow of time, the normal sequence would be healthy, healthy wounded, still alive, dead. But the sequence in Deuteronomy 32 and 39 is dead, brought back to life, living, but wounded, healed. This again looks like a reversal of the arrow of time. And that's the end of what was copied from Rothman's section. And Deb says, Notice that if time can be stopped and then reversed, then time also has the characteristics of a particle. Also, Barry Rothman didn't include the most famous time stop ever, which is when Joshua commanded the sun and moon to stand still because the sun and moon responded to the spoken words of faith. Wow, that's true. Joshua 10 and 12, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the nation had avenged themselves of their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stayed in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Okay, now, here's my thought, and it's more than a thought. Um, Barry is quite right. A reversal of time would bring back your old body at a younger age. But this is not the case as we know from Eve's body and the gifts that came with it. This is not a resurrection of the old body, but a new body given by God. You understand? So this is what a lot of people would think. And, of course, you can resurrect people that way, but it would be back to their old body. So let's talk about Eve's new body, okay? Because... uh I believe that Eve's new body shows us what the bride is about to have. And you should think very <laughs> uh, intensely on this. Uh, Deb Horton said this. She said, I couldn't sleep and just kept pondering about Eve's new body. At the pot blessing, I talked to David about the two verses I shared with Terry, and he agreed. He also said, uh, that he couldn't explain everything in a two-hour broadcast, 
So I fussed at him about his choice of words because people could take them the wrong way, just as I initially did, and he said that the Lord told him Eve's body was so defiled that he wouldn't resurrect it, but gave her a new body instead. Okay, not resurrecting the old body. Okay, Second Corinthians 5 and 17. Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. Obviously, when we're in heaven and we've received our new body, which is a resurrected body, by, I mean a, uh, uh, a spiritual heavenly body, you know, um, then everything will be new. We're born again, spirit, soul, and body. Okay? So, she said, I went to the Greek, and it could mean a completely different body. Yes. And uh, Terry McGinley said this, I asked and got a no. Uh, and this was for a resurrection of the old body. I asked if Eve had completely different body, a completely different body, and I got six heads in a row. I originally got four and asked for two more to confirm. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I agree with that 100%. So Eve was given a new, younger body. This is not a glorified body. This was a resurrection to a physical life. And hence, it was a physical body. Okay? Her spiritual woman was pulled out of the grave after two days of being buried uh, and was given a young, healthy body. Her spiritual woman is her spirit and the part of her soul that was born of God. This is what the Lord told me years ago. The spirit person. The spiritual woman is her spirit and the part of her soul that's born again. Right? Whereas her old carnal man was her flesh and the part of her soul that was unregenerate or unborn again, which God said burned up. It burned up. It was defiled, and he said he burned it up. Her body was not taken from the ashes of her old body because God said they were defiled. Ashes are pure uh, from disease, germs, etc., you know, uh, physical things. But they came from the old man. So in the spirit realm, they are defiled. I believe the DNA was more in line with the Lord's DNA. I mean, we drink his blood. We have no part of him unless we drink his blood and eat his body. In other words, it goes into us. The word of God is recreating the DNA of Jesus in us. I have been seen in dreams in such a body. And I believe it is the restoration of years under the curse mentioned in Joel chapter 2 and the restoration of all things uh, mentioned in Acts 3 and 21. Okay. Uh, however, things was not in the original Greek. It's not talking about things. It's talking about people. The restoration of all. 
It means uh, the restoration of the fully sanctified ones in Acts 3 and 21, who will be completely restored. Just as Eve typed the uh, bride in many dreams, I believe the bride will all have this regenerate body when the out-resurrection comes with the spiritual resurrection of the man-child to the throne. And that's including, of course, those people who are on the earth and uh, are being changed, okay? So she has a body like she would have wanted. Um, The Lord knew exactly what she liked and desired, and he, he did something about it. She looks mostly like original Eve, but younger and prettier. Her hair, which was uh, dyed red, is now naturally red. She has no hair on her legs since she hated shaving it, and her legs are more slim, uh, like she would have liked. She also has wonderful gifts now, like Jesus had, like uh, she's able to read minds and seeing things in the Spirit anywhere. Uh, her discernment is great. I was told by the Lord that she was uh, almost unique on earth because of her physical and spiritual makeup. And I asked if she ever had a symptom of sickness or pain, and she said, never. That appears to be a body that's not under the curse. Matt's dream, which we're going to share in a few minutes, shows her to have a special spiritual ministry for UBM, and hence her makeup and her gifts, right? And we have uh, already seen some of this. For instance, she is able to look in on our enemies and tell us exactly what they're doing and what they're talking about and what they're thinking. Yeah. And it's been very useful. Uh, she's looked in on um, factious uh, groups gathering together to plot their strategies against us <laughs> and told us everything. Uh, so, Terry McGinley asked, Is this where someone came back into a different body or am I just missing it? I received two tales for no. So, yes, she was given by God a completely new body. That was similar in looks, but without the characteristics that she did not like. So I asked for a verse by random computer and received Acts 2 and 38, she says. And Peter um, said unto them, Repent ye and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So she asked, what do I need to repent of? And she said, I received Philippians 3 and 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at the next verse, she says, and completion of the sentence. Who shall fashion anew the body of our humiliation? that it may be conformed to the body of His glory, according to the working whereby He is able even to subject all things unto Himself. So 
You can't argue with the Lord. He can make anything he wants to make. <laughs> and uh, he can um, fashion anew the body of our humiliation. In other words, the things we don't like about it, right? Um, I just don't know. The Bible says there's nothing new. Well, the first thought that came to me from this is uh, this means that it's happened before. Well, it has. Melchizedek had no earthly lineage. Eve's new body has no earthly lineage. Hebrews 7 and 3, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. Abideth a priest continually, but he was made like unto the Son of God. Now, fashioning again the body of our humiliation, right? We are the body of Christ, and we are being conformed to his image, and that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, so, so let's go on. We're going to talk about the double slit experiment. It's about time or the perception thereof. And it's also both a particle and a wave. Okay? Example. As soon as you say, now, your now is your past, and you are in your future. So technically, everything that can or will ever happen is happening all at the same time. Here's the link to a more layman's explanation as per Willard. So we'll put the link here. Here's an excerpt from that link. The double slit experiment is one of the most famous experiments in physics and definitely one of the weirdest. It demonstrates that matter and energy, such as light, can exhibit both wave and particle characteristics known as the particle-wave duality of matter. Depending upon the scenario, according to the scientific communication site, uh, Interesting Engineering, which is the site that Michael found. According to the University of Sussex, American physicist Richard Feynman referred to this paradox as the central mystery of quantum mechanics. We know the quantum world is strange, but the two-slit experiment takes things to a whole new level. The experiment has perplexed scientists for over 200 years. Ever since the first version of was first performed by British scientist Thomas Young in 1801, and there's a link here that you can look that up. Okay. Well, coming resurrections um, and Eve's new job. And this is Matt Stewart, the dream I was telling you about, 11-4-23. I had this dream the morning of November the 4th. I dreamt that we were in the middle of of a regular local meeting, and David was teaching. But then I had a vision within the dream. It was like the time before the meeting where everybody fellowships. I saw Leon was resurrected and sitting in a chair 
with his usual expression on his face. And I thought, Leon's back. And then I looked over and saw another man that had gone to heaven sitting there as well. In the dream, I knew him. But when I spoke up, I didn't remember who he was. And then I looked and I saw Eve sitting in a chair, very meek, reserved, and humble. I remember thinking that they're all back. They're all coming back. And this happened at a local meeting. Then I turned and looked into the center of the room where there was a commotion going on. I went over there, and Amber was slowly uh, physically materializing from the ground up. After she was fully formed, she said hi to me, and I said hi back, and everyone was so excited. So I went to look for Eve, and she was getting ready to leave to go back to her place to do some work for the ministry. So I followed her, and her workplace was in outer space. <laughs> and I, I, I just took it to mean a job in heavenly places in Christ, right? So a job that has been uh, made for her by God. It was a big floating house in outer space. I'm going to call it cyberspace. <laughs> from which you could go uh, there freely without a spaceship or special equipment to breathe. You can do that on cyberspace, right? So it's still in the physical realm. Okay. So I followed her up into space to her house, and she went to work on a computer to get something done for the ministry. And I thought to myself, this is cool. Well, notice that Eve is higher up the timeline than the rest of us because at the moment she is further into the future on the same believing timeline than the rest of us. Eve already has her new body, which she got uh, before the rest of us, which I think uh, was to show us about this new body and that it will be given to the bride because she types the bride in so many dreams. So, uh, and we don't get this body until future to Eve. Okay. Uh, or bringing us up to the time of Eve. Okay. Uh, it's in our future. It's in her past. So, therefore, she is higher on the timeline than we are, and here she is shown in space, right? So, uh, Eve already has her new body, which we will have in the future. The, to prove this, she was going to come to our meeting, and she was late. We were already worshiping, and I was guiding her in, speaking to her in the Spirit, uh, so she would know where to go, uh, which we both have a gift to do. I was given the same gift. Uh, Eve got that from the angels first, and they gave it to me later. And um, we're able to talk in the Spirit to people. I'll talk about it a little bit later. But I told her 
which roads to take, which were just two, and what road to turn on to come to the address of the property, which was clearly marked on the front of the building. The property number uh, was marked on the front of the building, the address number. We were, and it was 111, by the way, which is uh, a number uh, of gematria of uh, the birth of the man-child, 111. We were worshiping as I talked to her in my mind, which can also be done with words. And there were many cars out front, and we were pretty loud inside, worshiping the Lord. And she said, well, I'm there. And I'm looking at the address on the building, 111, and no one is there. (laughs) I said, can't you hear the noise and see all the cars? She said, there are no cars and no noise and no one is there. So I walked out of the meeting in front of everybody (laughs) and out the front door. And I saw no Eve. She said, I am here at the same address and street. And what the Lord told me was that until we got our new body, we would not be in the same time, even though we were on the same timeline, because she's further in the future. She was ahead of us, in heavenly maturity as far as her body was concerned. Also, she has tried to come to my house to talk to me and Michael three or four times. Michael says four times. I would ask her where she was because it was taking too long. And she would identify things along the way showing that she was getting closer. And then I would ask her, well, where are you now? Because she should have been here by now, right? She found herself back at her apartment, vehicle and all, and we both were confused. She she said, I'm back at my apartment. (laughs) Time had done something here, okay? So at the out-resurrection... We will all be at the same time and on the same timeline. And not just the resurrected people, but we who are in the bride will be in the same shape. Oh, so very, very interesting. You say, that couldn't happen? Well, (laughs) we watched it. And then the vision ended, and David was still teaching. So I raised my hand to tell David the vision I just had, but David told me to wait until he was done with his teaching, and then I woke up. So I asked the Lord about this. I believe that this is showing when the teaching with the former rain anointing is over, the man-child will be resurrected spiritually to the throne to begin the latter reign anointing of the Solomon man-child, who is the one that will rebuild the temple. Aha! So, 
when speaking or thinking a conversation with people in the Spirit, it's very clear even when speaking to someone on the other side of the earth. I can't tell that they're that far away. I mean, it's just as clear as a bell. Or in heaven or in hell, by the way. I've talked to people in heaven. I talked to Amber in heaven. And this is the only way to speak to our missionaries in a Muslim land that is not dangerous for them because they hack their phones and emails. This is a fact. And so if you don't want them to know, well, then we talk in the Spirit. And it is amazing. Nobody can break into it. Nobody can hack it. It's what the angels told us that they were going to give us supernatural methods to get the gospel out in the near future. And now it has happened. It is happening. I spoke to Amber in heaven, and she told me to tell Brandy she is coming soon. Only once have I seen an interruption of this gift, and it was God-ordained. I was trying to speak to leaders on the unbelieving cursed timeline And they couldn't hear me. (laughs) There's a reason for this. If you acknowledge them, uh, they gain power. The old man has to die. Okay? This happened with Jesus also. They couldn't hear him. He told them, you can't hear what I say. You know? I found out later that the fleshly carnal men on that timeline who were traitors are strengthened when you acknowledge them, it's it fits the whole quantum aspect. Okay. When you acknowledge them, you look at them, you acknowledge them, it strengthens them. Okay. But you want to see things differently. Okay. And I'll explain that. So this we found out with Kevin when he came back that we had to ignore and renounce him so that he died as God said. God said he was dead. And he was a Satanist that murdered many people, and nobody wanted him back except the the factious, because they had no sense whatsoever and no conscience. So the old man must die for the spiritual man on the believing timeline to live. As the outer man is decaying, the inner man is renewed day by day. So reckon yourselves to be dead, as the Bible says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body by doing that. Okay. So this dream, uh, Amber's return flight. <laughs> this is Anna Stewart, eleven nineteen twenty three. My dream started before Amber had died. In other words, in her dream, this was before Amber had died. And I had no knowledge in the dream that she had ever died. She was sick, but still able to move around for herself, and she took a flight somewhere and was now soon scheduled to return (laughs) from heaven, let me say. That's my note. We were discussing who would pick her up. Uh, from the airport. I volunteered to go, but Debbie said she'd pick her up since she'd already been there. Since she'd already be there. Excuse me, not been there, but be there. Okay? 
Well, this is meaning that Debbie would be back home with us to pick up Amber. Well, she just came back from her trip that she was on to see her family. So, Amber will be here soon with the rest of the out-resurrection. According to this, we agreed, uh, but then I was attacked with thought that her flight might be delayed. And, and uh, you, you understand that this quantum mechanics doesn't work positively for you if you have any form of unbelief. Okay? Uh, in fact, James chapter 1 tells you you're not going to receive anything from the Lord if you're double-minded. So I cast those thoughts down and thought, no, she's going to arrive on time with no delays. Okay, that's the good confession, and that's the faith, and that's what she sees as happening. Okay, and according to quantum mechanics, that's how it comes to pass. Well, she definitely took a flight to heaven, but praise God, she's coming back, and it appears this will be soon. If nothing else, I believe it is an encouragement that she's coming and to cast down any thoughts of being delayed, said Anna. And may we all be uh, counted worthy to see this thing through to the end. Amen. So Deb Horton said this, Time also exhibits the characteristics of both a wave and a particle. Example, as soon as you say now, you are in your future, and your now is your past. So technically, everything that can ever happen in creation is happening all at the same time, which perfectly supports the concept of different timelines and holding fast by faith to the promise. Okay. So in other words, Amber is already returned. The problem is that we have to have the eyes to see her at this time. See, it's when the particle, of course, when you set your eyes on it and you believe it, then it comes to pass, right? I think Anna's dream, uh, and many other dreams, by the way, are helping us to see this now, to understand this now, to understand the importance of when God says something, you believe you've received it. Jesus said, do this with everything you pray or ask him about. Everything. That's a command. It's not a request. He's telling you what faith is. So, she goes on to say, may the Father multiply our faith as the stars of heaven in Jesus' name. Amen. I agree. So, we, we named this part here, Amber is going to arrive on time, is going to arrive on time, Deb Horton. Some 50 or so years back, I simultaneously experienced two timelines running at, the, at different speeds. Here's what happened. Our neighbors down the street, Sue and Denny, were going to give us the swing set that their children had outgrown and so Denny called to let me know that he would be coming over with it that morning. The phone rang. I picked up the receiver and said, Hello. I heard Denny say, 
high. This is death. Just the first part of his name, death. And I was gone, thrown out of my body. I found myself standing under the shadow of what I just assumed was the wing of an airplane. There was barely enough light to see more than shadows, and the wind was just howling and groaning. She says, yes, that's the classic description of the astral plane. I don't know why I wasn't scared to death. Everything around me was either concrete or tarmac, and I was in the middle of speaking with some man. Well, not speaking. He had to shout over the noise of the wind. There was only one other man that I knew named Dennis back from when I lived in D.C., and although I couldn't really see who this man was, that's who I thought it was. We had to have been talking for at least three to four hours when I heard knee, the second syllable of Denny's name. <laughs> so three or four hours previously, she got Dan, and then now it's knee, <clears throat> the second syllable. In other words, there's no time in between, okay, of Denny's name. And I was back in the kitchen with the telephone receiver in my hand like nothing had happened. Uh, next to no time had elapsed. By the way, you know, uh, people go to heaven in a moment, and spend days up there. When they come back, they missed very little time because that's a timeless zone. <laughs> you know, we live in time, right? Um, she went on to say, as David likes to say, God always starts on time to finish on time. Okay, this we called Cutting the Python. Marie Kelton. 11-20-23. During, during the morning meeting, David was talking about the two timelines and that in the bad timeline, the people are dead to God's ways. I had an open vision of a python with half of its body coiled up. The other half with the head was lying on the ground dying. I then saw a hand holding a cleaver knife. It cut the body connected to the head apart from the coiled part of the body. Well, the one thing that came to me about this, and there are probably more, but the part of the body with the mouth and teeth is the unbelieving bad timeline who are the factious and other failed people who will eventually die off under the curse for lack of faith and good confession. They have no faith. The people in the faction have no faith whatsoever. They all go back to what they were doing before they got any faith uh, that they learned from UBM. And they don't have a conscience either. So uh, my thought is death and life are in the power of the tongue, which is in the head, right? 
Uh, Matthew 12 and 36 says, And I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Why is that? Because when you see something, however you see it, that's how you speak. And you see, that changes things around you. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, literally. So, people create their own future. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof, the Lord says. People create their own future by what comes out of their mouth. He said, you're going to give account for that, for what you said in the day of judgment. A factious woman that we know is on the bad timeline and thinks it's the only timeline she said so until God took her to hell and showed her the factious Satanist leaders and their head, Kevin, burning in hell. And she was told by the angel uh, that this was her timeline end if she didn't repent. So she burned in hell for a while and um, came back out. Okay, um, God does that. He's done it recently with a whole bunch of factious people. Uh, and surprisingly, some of them come out and they don't change their mind. That's the power of those demons on them and their lack of uh, faith and their lack of repentance. They can even listen to God speak to them as he did when they were in hell and ignore him. Hmm. So, here's an alternate time island. And this was given to Anonymous 11 20, 23. In my dream, I was on this desert island with David Eels, and we would somehow translate on and off the island to normal land. It was really nice having this, like a private island and freedom. However, a couple that fell into faction were also on the island, and we could see them, but they couldn't see us, even if we stood next to them. So Deb said this, uh, Luke 16 and 26, And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, that they that would pass from hence to you may not be able and that none may cross over from thence to us. We saw them moving around and living on the island, but where they were was all dark colors and the parts of the island that they moved on uh, was as if uh, it were a different island with thorns and not nice colors and difficult uh, areas the land seemed dark and cursed and haunted. And Deb put this, this note there, Hebrews 6 and 7, For the land which has drunk the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them whose sake it is also tilled, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's rejected and nigh unto a curse, whose end is to be burned." 
But the island that we were on was colored and beautiful. So the, the part of the island they were on was all, you know, cursed, and this part was blessed. It was colored and beautiful and not cursed. Even though this was the exact same island the factious couple were on. I felt that they didn't even want to be able to see us. They don't like they don't like seeing us, obviously. And uh, they couldn't at all, but we could see them. And actually we can. We can see everything they're doing. <laughs> As I told you before. They were not able to get off the island and they were stuck on it. But David and I could freely leave the island as we desired. Uh, the island, I believe, had all the opportunities of quantum physics. And if you see and believe, you will receive, but they can only see their cursed timeline because they don't believe. So there's a separation here. You see, Second uh, Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled in them that perish. The good news is not on their tongue. The only thing they want to do is slander and bring down anybody that's walking righteously. That's all they, that's their whole ambition. They don't preach the gospel to anybody or anything like that. They don't believe the gospel anymore. They are just total in unbelief and under the curse. And if you look at them, you see that they age much faster than we do. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. And it doesn't. It was kind of like two different realities, but as one. The two of us had the choice to see both realities as we desired, but the factious couple could only see the one that they were in, and they had no knowledge or understanding of anything else. And actually, they believe that they are in the only timeline, but they don't know it ends in hell. So this has caused uh, this is of course a separation. God is separating the wheat from the tares in more ways than we ever thought, and it is according to their very words and their very faith. And the fact that they never forgive, of course, means what Jesus said that they're never forgiven. If you're never forgiven, you're lost. And if you're lost, you're under the curse. It's very obvious that they're under the curse. Okay, this one we call multiple shifting timelines. Um, not the, Deb said, I'm not the best explainer, but here goes. If nothing is fixed or set or real or manifested, choose your word, until it is observed and believed, then all possibilities have to exist simultaneously. The cat has to be alive, and the cat has to be dead. The cat never has to have been in the box. 
and the cat has to be having kittens in the box, and the cat has to be a yellow tabby, and the cat has to be a calico, and so on. It's all according to what a person perceives in their mind they want, and they ask for it, and they believe they've received, or they don't, okay? So every possibility of the cat has to be there to meet the expectation of every possible observer being either positive or negative. And at what's been proven is that when you uh, look on this particle or wave uh, and you believe you have received this thing in your mind and that's what you see, that's what you get. Jesus said that. So, science is just proving what Jesus said. Interestingly, uh, multiple timelines seem to be appearing in movies. For example, Angel Studios uh, has released The Shift as a modern-day retelling of the book of Job. Kevin Garner gets separated from Molly, the love of his life, when a mysterious uh, adversary known as the Benefactor sends him to an alternate dystopian reality. Well, uh, families are getting separated through the slander spoken from the wicked to cause people to receive faction and witchcraft and slander. It separates families. Uh, And then, of course, um, they're trying to find one another. And generally, uh, whoever gets infected first destroys the other. That's generally what happens. Will hope and faith be enough to find his way back? See the shift in theaters December the 1st. And the deep state media has released another movie about timelines called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. (laughs) Okay, so they know about it too. Yes, of course. The NPR movie review says, Multiverses are having something of a moment popping up in recent movies like Spider-Man, No Way Home, and upcoming ones like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah, they're just popping up everywhere. Everybody's getting the revelation of this. But they don't recognize it as a timeline of faith or a timeline of unbelief. They're going to have what they want. If it's more sin, that's what they'll get. If it's more righteousness and purity and you believe you have received, that's what you're going to get. Okay. It's refreshing then to get a new multiverse movie this this week that doesn't spring from the word world of comic book superheroes. It's called Everything Everywhere All at Once. An apt title for a movie that imagines the existence of thousands of alternate timelines featuring thousands of alternate versions of ourselves. So the Bible is, no surprise, uh, correct. Deuteronomy 30 and 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day 
that I have set before thee life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life. In other words, choose to believe the good timeline that agrees with the promises uh, in the Word. Choose to believe life, that thou mayest live, thou and thy seed. Amen. Teach your children how to walk by faith and talk by faith and see by faith. Verse 20. To love the Lord thy God, to obey his voice, and to cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to give them. Well, you know, uh, let me see. It was the land of milk and honey. But the others claimed all they saw was giants. And so they brought the bad report, and so they died in the wilderness. Yes. Ezekiel 12 and 2. Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of the rebellious house that have eyes to see and see not, that have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Mm-hmm. And Luke 8 and 10. And he said, Unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Sounds like that island, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think this explains Psalm 82 and 6, I said, Ye are gods, and all of you sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So we are co-creators of our life based on what we choose to believe. Do you see that? How amazing that God has made this whole universe to serve in the creation. All right, I'm going a little over time. But God bless you and keep you. And Michael's going to come and share something with you. And uh, thank you so much, Father, in Jesus' name, for being with them. And uh, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Well, hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Thank you, Brother David. And bless you. Lord, we just praise you. We glorify you for the word that you have given us. The word that's infallible, the word that is our reasons for being. We thank you for all the promises you've given us. We thank you, Father, for prayer that you've afforded us and faith and love and all of those things, Father. We ask today, Lord, that uh, you anoint us to give out this uh, wonderful message on love, faith, and prayer. All three of them, Father, we thank you that... Uh, It'll be a blessing to everybody. And I pray, Lord, that it would uh, go out and help a lot of folks. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. All right. Lord, I ask that you speak through me the things that you'd have us to pray, have us to say. And uh, thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Well, that's what I want to talk about today is love, faith, and prayer. Let's start out with Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith working through love. Romans 5 and 5. And hope puts not to shame because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit which was given unto us. Both faith and love, folks, are of the heart. And if you'll notice, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. The love of God is not shed abroad in our heads. If you let your head dominate you, you're going to be in trouble. And also the Bible doesn't say the love of God is shed abroad in our bodies by the Holy Ghost. No, what the Bible says, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And according to the love law, the strong must bear the infirmities of the weak and not please themselves. Because selfishness is the mother of practically every one of our miseries. And most of our tears are born of selfishness. Love makes one lighthearted, companionable, and helpful. The Jesus kind of love is God's cure for every ill. Because love lifts one out of the realm of the flesh and into the realm of the spirit. Human love is the most beautiful flower that humanity has naturally. But it is a poison flower. Because it has caused heartaches, divorces, broken homes, wrecked families that disgrace our civilization. The Jesus kind of love never broke a home. It has never wrecked a life. It has never made a criminal out of a single child. And this in itself should awaken everybody. That the moment that one becomes love-minded, he becomes broad-minded, God-minded, humanity-minded. He sees the need. And his ears become attuned to catch the sigh and to feel the sob of all the broken hearts around him. And when we become love-minded, we actually take Jesus' place. And if we live in love, we'll begin to bear the fruits of love. The fruit of love will be in the actions and the conduct and the words that are born of love. And those days of hating, of jealousy, of bitterness, and revenge are past. Glory to God. This Jesus kind of love is the answer to the heart cry of childhood, of youth, of manhood, and of old age. It'll take the bitterness out of the heart and soften the lines of the face. It'll make husband and wife more than content with their own home. Because this love is a home builder and a home preserver. This is God's method of protecting marriage. This is God's method of protecting childhood and motherhood. And when that Jesus kind of love gains the ascendancy in the hearts of husband and wife, no other law is necessary to preserve the home. Because that old human love it's based on selfishness. And it can easily, and we've seen it, turn to hatred, jealousy, bitterness, and murder. 
But the very provocations that would make the old love turn to bitterness make the new kind of love more beautiful because it seeks not its own. It bears with all kinds of persecutions and bitterness and it never sinks to the level of its agitator because love promotes health. God is love. God is my healer. Love is the healer. And now I can understand why bitter thoughts can upset the stomach. Amen. I can understand now that there is only one sin for the believer and that's to step outside of love. How many of you know Jesus is love? All other sins are the children of the mother's mother of mother sin of sins. So we need to learn to think in terms of love. Learn to give in love so that the background of your life, the mother of your actions is love. This Jesus kind of love. Get love's language and learn it. Let it displace the language of the world. He loved, you love. He died for them, you live for them. Because he is in you, the lover of men, loving through you. It's giving love, it's placing life. Love has to be first. The believer moves in love. It's the center of his being. Because love has all the earmarks of Jesus. It is the center of his being. It is a love that covers up the failings and weaknesses of those about it. It never talks unkindly, never bears a tale. It is the unfeigned love that loves from the heart fervently. A love that lifts us out of the commonplace into its own realm. A natural human love is born of selfishness. And when that selfishness is thwarted, it becomes miserable. We believe in the person we love. It is hard for us to doubt where love has found a nesting place. And it's going to be a victorious hour when we learn to believe in love. And it's something that lifts us into a realm above the senses where we trust in an unseen force. And if you trust in love, you trust in God because God is love. And then it's following God. We'll go where love leads. We will do what love suggests. And that's the way Jesus lived. He followed love. We set aside the things that we once craved for love's sake. For we're going down the path of love, glory to God. And it might be thorn-filled or it might be strewn with roses. But we're still going to follow love. And we know from Galatians 5 and 6 that faith works by love. Faith is also of the heart, not of the head. A lot of, too many people get into trouble in their faith walk because they don't understand that. Mark 11 and 23 says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he saith comes to pass, he shall have it. Faith will work in your heart with doubt in your head, but you see, if people don't know that, if people are going by their heads and doubts begin to rise in their minds, they'll think they're in doubt and unbelief. But you can have faith in your heart with doubt in your head. Listen to what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord and shalt believe in thy heart 
that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Folks, it's with the heart that man believes, not with your head, because faith is of the heart. Faith works by love, God's love. The God kind of love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. We didn't have that love until God gave it to us. And faith works by this kind of love. And the problem with too many people is that they try to substitute natural human love for divine love or the God kind of love. But the two are not the same. They're not the same thing. Natural human love can turn to hatred overnight. But divine love will not. Now let's look at Mark eleven twenty three through 25. In relation to faith working by the God kind of love. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he says comes to pass, he shall have it. Therefore I say unto you, all things whatsoever ye pray and ask for, believe that ye received them, and ye shall have them. There's a lot of Christians out there that rejoice over Mark 11, 23 and 24, and I do too. I thank God for these verses of Scripture because they, they brought me a whole bit, a lot of years of health. But let's read on a little further in verse 25. See what it says, Mark eleven twenty-five. And whensoever you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against anyone, that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Folks, verse 25 is as much a part of the Bible as Mark eleven twenty-three and 24. And if you'll notice that conjunction A-N-D and at the beginning of verse 25, that word and joins what Jesus said previously in verses 23 and 24, that you can have what you say if you believe it in your heart to what he said in verse 25. And when you stand praying, forgive. And faith works by love and divine love forgives. Well, there's folks out there right now. Well, I just can't believe, oh, so-and-so. But the God kind of love can forgive. Really, if a believer says, I just can't forgive, he's letting his head or flesh dominate him because the love of God has been shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost, says in Romans 5 and 5. And love forgives. Actually, the Bible says we as Christians can forgive just as God forgave us. Ephesians 4 and 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. God didn't say, I have forgiven you of your sins. But every time I get a chance, I'm going to remind you of them. That's not what he said. Because if he said that, we'd all be in a mess. No, God canceled our sins because of Christ substitutionary work that he did on the cross. God said in Isaiah 43 and 45, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember 
thy sins. Glory to God. You see how great this is, this verse is here? We know that God is love. And love says in Hebrew 8 and 12, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You know what happens a lot of times is that people let their head dominate them instead of their hearts. But the Bible says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, glory to God, not in our heads. And that's the same way with faith. Faith is of the heart. You could have a heart full of faith and still die of sickness or disease. Or you could have a heart full of faith and never get an answer to prayer. You've got to release your faith and express your faith. Confess it. You've got to get that faith out of your heart into expression. And you've got to get your faith working and acting. And well, how do you do that? Through your actions and your words, glory to God. Confess it and walk in it. And it makes a lot of difference when you walk in love. When you walk in love, your faith will work. And if my faith wasn't working, that's the first thing I'd check up on, see if I was walking in love. And we know that faith works by love. In fact, faith won't work any other way. In other words, you could have faith to move mountains. But if you ain't walking in love, your faith is going to be ineffective. You've got to release the love of God from your heart in the same way you release your faith through actions and words. Because faith and love are of the heart. And faith works by love. Well, I want to switch gears here now. And I want to talk about how many times should we pray for one thing? I know that's been a, uh, I've heard Smith Wigglesworth or quotes by him that says, if you pray a hundred times and uh, 99 times, and then the hundredth time you get your prayer answered, that 99 times your prayer was in doubt and unbelief. I don't think that's what the word of God says. Let's check and see what it says. There are those people out there who declare that once you pray over a matter, we just talked about Wigglesworth, either for a soul to be saved or someone to be healed for a domestic situation, for anything. And when you repeat that same prayer, that indicates unbelief. I used to believe that, but I don't anymore because I checked into the Word of God and found different. Now think about that for a moment because it's real important to understand the ramifications of the position that you you only pray one time. Now let me restate this question more specifically. If you ask God in prayer to save your son or your daughter, should you never ask him again? Here's another one. If you ask God to guide you in a decision, should you never seek guidance in that same situation again? If you ask the Lord to help you solve some great financial problem, are you never to pray concerning finances again? So how many times should we pray for something? Well, let's see what the Word of God has to say concerning that question. Luke 18 and 1 says, here's Jesus talking. He said, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Jesus himself epitomized this concept. He prayed continually and he never lost heart. And since Jesus is our model, 
We ought to follow his example, don't you think? Now, remember, as believers, we're involved in spiritual warfare. And this ain't a game, folks. This ain't child's play. And we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the high places, heavenly places. When you are in a war, you fight to win. And if you're a good soldier, you dig in and you fight until you win. You don't quit. And that same principle applies to spiritual soldiers involved in spiritual warfare. It applies to prayer. Because you can't afford to be a quitter in anything, especially in prayer. You might be involved in a spiritual battle to see someone come to the Lord. So you pray earnestly a time or two, or for a week, or for a month. And if you don't see any progress, you just quit. How many of you know that you realize, you need to realize that you may have quit just an hour, just a day too soon. And that if you had not lost heart and quit, the victory would have been yours. Now I thank God that throughout history, there were people who didn't tire of praying. Martin Luther prayed many times before he was able to take a strong public stand that the just shall live by faith and win his spiritual freedom. John Wesley prayed a lot of time, many times, before his heart was strangely warmed at Aldersgate and the course of his life and as, and as well as the course of his country was changed. The founders of our country, the USA, prayed many times before God removed all the barriers and the United States of America became a reality. Now, let's go back to the original question. If you pay, pray more than once for anything, is the second prayer a prayer of unbelief? Well, I'm finding out. I found out that the answer is a firm, unequivocal no. And I can't accept that theological precept, and I urge you to open the pages of Scripture with me to examine both sides of the question, okay? Now, let's first examine the account of the Israelites' assault upon an impregnable enemy city. Let's look in Joshua chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thy hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. You shall compass the city, all the men of war going about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark, and the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up every mass straight before him. Well, praise God, Josh had sense enough to do exactly what God told him. He didn't argue, and he didn't ask, Lord, why should we march more than one time? How come we can't just pray one time? Aren't you able to perform a miracle with just one prayer? No. Joshua obeyed God, and the people marched. They marched and they prayed. 
They did it one day. God said, go ahead and do it again. They did it the second day. God said, do it again. And that action was repeated until God's command was fulfilled to the letter. Then, that's when the miracle happened. They prayed their way around that city 13 long, weary times before the answer came. But when they obeyed God, he gave them the miracle that they had looked for. If they had left the ark, that's a symbol of God's presence, behind when they marched, the miracle wouldn't have been given to them. If they had let the trumpets remain in camp on the seventh day, that miracle wouldn't have happened. If they had ceased praying after the first or the second or even the twelfth time, that miracle wouldn't have happened. But they persisted in prayer as God commanded And they got their miracle, glory to God. Now, why did God say march around the city once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day? I don't know. But I do know that when Joshua and the people obeyed God, he gave them that mighty miracle. He gave them the previously impenetrable city of Jericho. And it fell to the Israelites without even a fight. Folks, there are reasons for answered prayer. And the first and foremost is obedience. Strict, absolute obedience. And there's also reasons for unanswered prayer. And the first and foremost is what? Disobedience. You know, you can liken prayer unto uh, like an ocean tide. When the tide begins to roll in, the water is low and the beach is covered with with trash, isn't it? Then a wave rolls up higher. Then the next one comes up a little bit further. And after that, each successive wave is lapping even higher upon the shore. And as each one pushes its way further up on the beach, it washes away the trash. And prayer is like that tide. Pray. Pray again. Pray again. Because each time you pray, that devil is defeated again. Each time you pray, more is accomplished. More clutter and trash are washed away, and the miracle you desire is a whole lot closer than you realize. Each time you pray for a situation or person, it's like another march around Jericho, or like another wave up on the beach. And although you don't see the answer, it's being accomplished in the spirit realm. So you pray till the answer comes. Like the march around Jericho, the city is coming down. That city wall is coming down. Just like the tide, it'll come in. Now, Elisha's procession resulted in a miracle of healing. There's no doubt about it. That child was dead. Elisha's servant reported it to his master. The child was a special child. That was the child of promise. That was the Shunanite woman that had longed for a child, but her husband was old, and she despaired of not having one. Now, just as the prophet had predicted, she had that child. But what happened? Tragedy struck her. The child died, and she sent back for the prophet of God, Elisha. Let's go to Second Kings chapter 4, 30, uh, 34 and 35. And he went up 
and lay upon the child. That's Elisha. Lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hand. And he stretched himself upon him. And the flesh of the child <coughs> waxed warm. Did he return and walked in the house once to and fro, went up and stretched himself upon him and the child's knees seven times. And the child opened his eyes. Well, that's an outstanding miracle of healing that took place because a man of God wouldn't give up easy. He stretched himself out on that child, praying as he did times several times before the miracle of healing occurred. He could have given up and buried the child, but he refused to do so. Once was not enough. So he came back and repeated that performance. And the child was brought back to life. Well, let's talk about Naaman. Because his persistence brought healing. Naaman, who was a mighty general in the Syrian army, he had wealth and power. He had everything he needed. But he had something he didn't need. And that was leprosy. And if his leprosy were to be discovered, he would become an outcast. So something had to be done. It was a serious situation. The Jewish maid of General Naaman's wife suggested that he go to Elisha the prophet. Elisha will cure you of your leprosy, she promised. And Naaman refused to visit just a mere prophet. So he presented himself to the king of Israel with his request. When Elisha heard of the request, he sent a messenger to Naaman telling him to, in 2 Kings 5, 10 and 14, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Well, if you know the story, you know that at first, Naaman was angry as being sent to the tiny, muddy Jordan River. But he finally was talked into going. And you can be sure that with each of his dips in that river, he prayed, God, make me clean. God, make me clean. And after a dip, he looked, he see that there was still leper, leprosy. But he dipped again, and he dipped again. And the second time under, he checked himself. His skin still bore the marks of the disease. What did he do? He dipped again. He dipped again. And each time he prayed, and God blessed his persistency, and he was healed. Glory to God. That's what we have to do. We have to do exactly Keep on going until we get the results that we are looking for. Jesus taught that persistence in prayer. Look at Luke 18 and 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And in this parable, Jesus told of a persistent widow who came to the judge again and again with a request until they were granted. On one occasion, even Jesus prayed for a blind man twice. Mark 8, 22 through 25. And they come unto Bethsaida, and they bring to him a blind man 
and beseech him to touch him. And he took a hold of the blind man by the hand, brought him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, Seest thou aught? He looked up and said, I see men, for I behold them as trees walking. And then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked steadfastly and was restored, and he saw all things clearly. Persistence. Even our Lord demonstrated it by his life, by his very actions. He didn't give up until the miracle came. Even the great apostle Paul, he believed in praying more and more. Second Corinthians 12 and 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul didn't give up praying until the Lord showed him the answer. If Jesus didn't give up, and if Paul didn't give up, then we ought not to give up. We need to hang in there until that answer that we're looking for comes. And then Jesus persisted in prayer at Gethsemane. Just before going to the cross, our Lord spent a night in prayer. And then he admonished his disciples. Matthew 26, 41 through 44. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying again the same words. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he believed in praying more than once, saying the same words when he did so. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, we have Dozens of illustrations of those who believed it necessary to hold on in prayer until the answer came, even if the matter must be presented to God several times. And so there on the basis of biblical evidence, I urge you folks, don't give up in prayer. Don't give up. If anything is worth praying for, it's worth doing it right. Pray. Pray again. Write down your request. Write it on the wall of your room if necessary. But pray and repeat your request. Repeat it with thanksgiving and praise to the Father. But repeat it. And in his perfect timing, our loving Heavenly Father will give you what you need. And I guarantee you, you can count on it. Now, there are some problems of unanswered prayer. And most of us have repeatedly heard that God answers prayer, that prayer changes things. And we print these little signs and plaques to this effect and mount them on the walls of our homes and put bumper stickers on the same message on our cars. That's all well and good because those statements are, are true. They're basically true. But as wonderful and powerful as prayer is, and as much as God delights in answering the prayers of his children, the fact remains that there are times when our prayers seem to be unanswered, and that can be troubling, especially in the light of what we know about God's pleasure in answering. 
So we, we need to look at some of the reasons why prayers don't get answered. And it's important that we be aware of those things that block our prayers. Then we can do something about it. We can remove the obstacles and begin to see the power of prayer flowing in our lives again. A lack of a close relationship with God. Well, we need to realize first that effective prayer grows out of a close relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God is always available to speak with us. And we need to develop the habit of meeting with him regularly to discuss the concerns of our hearts and his. We need to commune with him often, not just when we've got a problem. Then, when we have a specific request or need for guidance, we are comfortable in his presence and attuned to hearing his voice when he answers. Developing a relationship with God involves the reading and study of the Bible as well as prayer. But prayer is simple and always available. You can pray at any time, in any place, and God's there to speak with you. Many people, however, even amazingly professing believers, simply do not pray at all. They may neglect prayer out of laziness or lack of love for the Lord or lack of appreciation for prayer power. Those are serious problems. But many do it simply on the false assumption that God knows what my needs are. And he'll just go ahead and give me what I need. Since he's going to give me what I need anyway, there ain't no need for me to pray. Then there's others out there who say, well, I'm just a housewife. Or I'm a janitor. Or I'm just an old farmer. And I don't think God's too interested in a little nobody like me. He's busy, busy, too busy with his important people. So I don't pray much. Both of those attitudes are wrong. And it's true that God knows what we need. But as our loving Heavenly Father, He wants to talk with Him and express our needs. First Peter 5 and 7, 7 tells us to be constantly casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. And the reason for this is our own good. We need to express our concerns to someone who cares. God not only cares, but he's able to meet our needs. And so we're told in Philippians chapter 4 and 6, In nothing be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be be made known unto God. When we obey this instruction and discuss our concerns with the Father, what's going to be the result? Philippians 4 and 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Ooh, that's awesome. In the second case, shyness or feelings of inferiority are not viable reasons for anyone's failure to pray. Because God's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. He'll answer the prayer of a housewife or a queen a mechanic or a king, a farmer or a sales clerk, a preacher or a business person. He wants to hear from you just as much as he wants to hear from the greatest preacher. And he'll listen as closely and lovingly to you as to anyone else. Now there's another reason why an intimate relationship with God is crucial to seeing your prayers answered. 
one of the conditions of prayer that God has given us in the Bible is that prayers he will answer must be prayers in line with his plans. First John five fourteen tells us, and this is the boldness which we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, how do we discern the will of God so that we can be increasingly confident as time goes by that our prayers are in accord with his will? Well, the answer again is to spend time with him in his word and in prayer so that our knowledge of and intimacy with him deepens. And as we come to better know our God in his ways, we will find that our prayers are answered more often because they reflect his desires more often. We need to catch a vision of the majesty, the glory, the holiness, and righteousness of God. We need to realize that whereas our view of a situation is limited to our terribly imperfect mortal ability to understand, the Lord says in Isaiah 55 and 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can't hope to have the Father's perfect knowledge of a given situation. And we need to appreciate his superiority. And as we grow in our knowledge of and love for him, however, we will grow in our ability to discern his will and to pray in accord with him. It's easy, given our imperfect understanding, to make a request we think is all for the good, but God knows it's not the best plan. Now, just for an example, suppose you are concerned about a neighbor who is unemployed and you hear about a job opening with a company A that sounds perfect for your neighbor. So you tell him about it and then ask God to give him that job. However, God may know that there are circumstances at company A that would make it real difficult for your neighbor to be happy or productive there. And he may want to direct him to an opening you know nothing about. That company be. Well, my point is simply that God's knowledge is complete. And his ways are wonderful, whereas we are very limited in our understanding. So on many occasions when our prayers seem not to be answered, the problem may be that we have not asked according to God's will. But as we come to know God and his will better, we'll find that our prayers are increasingly effective. Wrong attitudes or motives. You know, wrong wrong motives are certainly will prevent one's receiving answers to his prayers. For instance, to petition God for things merely to satisfy one's selfish desires is wrong. God ain't going to honor that kind of prayer. James spoke to that point in his epistle in uh, chapter 4 and verse 3. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may spend it in your pleasures. One's goals should glorify God always. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you live by the philosophy of those words, you're going to see your prayers answered. But if you're selfish, self-centered, or self-indulgent, 
your prayers ain't going to be answered. John Knox, he was a great Presbyterian preacher. He gave us a fine example of praying selfishly, selflessly. He he prayed this. He said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. His burning desire was to see his entire nation come to a saving faith in Jesus. And Mary, Queen of Scots, testified to the efficacy of Knox's praying when she said, I fear that man's prayer more than I fear all the armies of England and France. Well, pride is another motive that'll cause a person's prayers not to be answered. Jesus told a story of two men who went to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a publican. In today's terminology, the Pharisees could be compared to a very proper, morally upright believer who was very zealous to see God's law obeyed. He believed in the Torah, the written word of God, and he lived by the law and the prophets. And the other man might be compared to an unchurched man, one who lived in violation of the laws and rules of the church. He probably had cheated. All the people from whom he collected taxes, demanding more than was necessary, pocketing the difference. So both of them came to the temple to pray. Now we know why the Pharisee came. It was his habit to do so. And he did it three times a day. But we don't know why the tax collector came to pray. Perhaps he was having a personal health difficulties. At any rate, he came to the temple too. Jesus said in Luke 18, 11 and 13, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as the rest of men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be thou merciful to me, a sinner. Which of these two men do you think was justified? Which one heard his prayer answered? Well, Jesus gave us the answer. The Pharisee who exhausted himself would be humbled, or in this case, not get through to God. But of the tax collector who had humbled himself before God, Jesus said he will be exalted. Verse 14. The Pharisee prayed wrongly with the wrong attitude. His prayer was denied. But the publican prayed rightly. His prayer was answered. He went home a changed man, a new creature by the power of Almighty God. Yeah, there's some prayers that can't be answered. They're prayed because they're prayed by the wrong people with the wrong attitude at the wrong time. And a person who is not fully committed to God and who prays with mixed motives will likewise see few prayers answered. An example here is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus seeking eternal life. Jesus looked into the man's heart and knew that he loved his riches, his home, and his fat, carefree life more than he loved God. What did Jesus do? He told him, go sell all his possessions, give them to the poor, and then come follow me. 
Luke 18, 22. But because of his riches and his security and his selfishness, the man said, I can't do it. I don't want to follow you to that extent. And the Bible tells us that the young man sorrowfully walked away from eternal life because he was unwilling to free his heart of the sin of selfishness. He loved for his love for money separated him from God. You know, a man doesn't have to be wealthy to hold back from God. Even a little money can hinder a man's serving God. And when money stands between man and God, he cannot get his prayers answered. It's only when a man opens his heart and his bank account, the totality of all that he is and possesses, that God can open the windows of heaven to him and pour out true riches upon him. Now, there are other hindrances to answer prayer, such as unconfessed sin. Psalm 66 and 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I see sin in my own heart and ignore it, God will not hear. David said, thus stating an unequivocal biblical principle. Likewise, if God sees sin in my heart, my prayers ain't going to be answered. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. Listen, if there's strife between a husband and wife, the husband's prayers not going to be answered. First Peter 3 and 7, ye husbands. In like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel, as being also joint heirs of the grace of life, to the end that your prayers be not hindered. And that same principle, that same principle right there applies to the women also. If they mistreat their husbands, their prayers aren't going to be answered either. Where there is domestic tranquility, answers to prayer will abound. But strife, bickering, cynicism, sarcasm, general lack of peace in a home, guarantee that prayers aren't going to be answered. And idolatry of any kind is also a hindrance to prayer. Ezekiel 14 and 3, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all by them? Well, the implied answer is an emphatic no. But notice God's placement of idols in their hearts and before them. What we think about and what we love to feast our eyes upon become idols. And idols prevent God's hearing our prayers. An unforgiving spirit also prevents answered prayer. If anyone has slandered or spoken ill of you, disappointed you, or if he has actually done you physical or financial harm, you have to forgive them. Because if you don't forgive them, you are actually preventing your own prayers from being heard. A bad spirit renders prayer completely ineffective. Mark 11 and 25. And whensoever ye stand praying, forgive. If you have all against anyone, that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. 
That's something else. Being being uh, inconsiderate of the poor hinders your prayers too. Proverbs twenty one thirteen. Whoso stops his ear that the cry of the poor, poor, he also shall cry, but shall not be heard. Generosity and Christian victory go hand in hand. A whole lot of prayers unnoticed and unanswered for the simple reason that we're deaf to the cries of human needs. Hardness of our hearts stops God's giving to us. Delay is not denial. Finally, we need to bear in mind that dealing with delayed answers to prayer is one of the greatest problems concerning prayer. We have all experienced delayed answers to prayer. And if you're impatient, expect or demand an immediate answer to your prayer, a delay might seem a denial when an hour or a day or a month later will prove you wrong. God answered your prayer. Though not at the exact moment you uttered the petition. For example, uh, um, let's look in uh, John's writing. Mary and Martha's brother was ill, wasn't he? Lazarus. And his sisters prayed that their brother's health would be restored. But despite their prayers, Lazarus went ahead and died. He was placed in a tomb. And certainly to the sisters and friends of Lazarus, it appeared that their prayers had been to no avail. Days later, when Jesus spoke the words of resurrection power, glory to God, they realized that their prayers had not been denied. That answer was merely postponed. And if you've been praying for a situation and the answer has not come immediately, don't give up in discouragement. And if you've been living right and praying right, your prayers are going to be answered. You can count on it. There were ten lepers came to Jesus, begging, praying to be healed. And though he spoke words of encouragement to them, they were not immediately healed. But as they obeyed him, they were healed. Again, delay was not in denial. Their earnest prayer was answered. And you can read to that account in Luke chapter 17. Then we got Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman, woman came out from those borders and cried, saying, Have mercy, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. This was a worried mother. She was weeping and prayed that Jesus would heal her daughter. But Jesus seemed like he didn't hear her. Undaunted, the woman worshipped him and sought him again. The disciples, wearied with her entreaties, wanted to send her away. But this woman persisted, and what happened? Her request was granted, glory to God. Not a denial, only a a delay. So listen, if your earnest prayer doesn't seem to have been answered, if your healing is not complete, if your need is not completely met, don't become discouraged. Don't give up. Because if you're living right and praying right, you're experiencing only a delay, not a denial. Well, folks, I'm out of time. God bless you. I hope this blesses you. And we'll see you next time. God willing. Amen. My thirsting soul